being obedient unto death, Jesus crying out with a loud voice gave up the ghost. He died. He really died. It's the central point of our religion. His soul separated from his body. His divinity remained with both his body and his soul, but his body and his soul did not remain together. He did die. And it was fitting for him, the Son of God, to die, for he was to conquer death. He would conquer the kingdom of death and the ruler of that kingdom, who is the devil. And by his death, he conquers death, and by conquering death, he frees those who live in fear of death. That is, all of us who must one day also die. Because Christ died and by his death he conquered death, we no longer need to fear death. But we must have faith, and we must pray for that kind of faith, that kind of faith which does not fear. Faith is a gift, and it can be lost. We must pray for that kind of faith that does not fear death. For he whom we proclaim as our God has conquered death, because not even in death did death have power over him. He gave up his life when he chose, not when death took him, but when he chose to lay down his life. Death ruled us through our fear, but no more. The Council of Trent tells us that Christ died not from the external violence that had been done to him, but because he chose to die. As was told by the prophet Isaiah, he was offered because it was his own will. And as our Lord himself said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No man take it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. At least twice in his life, he passed unseen from the midst of those who would kill him. But when his hour had come, the hour that he had chosen, he said plainly to his enemies, I am the one you seek. I am he. See, the punishment for sin is death, and consequently also the fear of death. But Mary's son is without sin. And he stepped into our place by his own free choice, without fear. Think about that. If you murdered a man and you're put on trial and found guilty and you're sentenced to death, and as you're being led to execution, someone steps out of the crowd and says, No, wait, I'll go in his place. And then you recognize that that person is the son of the man that you've murdered. It is this death of our Lord, seeing his bitter passion through to its bitter end, that is the surest sign of his love for us. It is this love, this love that forgives and that we ask to be made partakers of when we say, forgive us our trespasses. Consider such love and that we are the beneficiaries of it. Ask yourself, how can I not love such a one? 
Am I so selfish as to not be grateful to the one who has set me free from fear and saved me from death? Am I so ungrateful as to continue living my selfish life and not do for him that little bit that he asks of us? What relief we should feel being ourselves totally unable to pay the debt, and yet we are told to ask, forgive us our trespasses. And if he chose the time and the place and the method of his own death, is it not reasonable to think that he also chose how his death should come about? He was not killed only by those who worshipped false gods or by those who were disobedient, nor those who were murderers or adulterers or thieves or liars. But he was handed over by Judas, who was a man of avarice. Avarice is the capital sin which the last two commandments point to. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, neither shalt thou desire his wife, nor his servant, nor his handmaid, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. Exodus twenty seventeen. And avarice is the vice which drives all the others. From the Council of Trent, what is commanded in these two commandments amounts to this, that if we wish to observe the preceding precepts of the law, that is, the other eight commandments, we must be particularly careful not to covet. For he who does not covet, being content with what he has, will not desire what belongs to others, but will rejoice in their boundless thanks and will observe the Sabbath. That is, they will enjoy perpetual repose and will respect superiors. In fine, they will injure no man in word or deed or otherwise. For the root of all evil is concupiscence, which hurries its unhappy victim into every species of crime and wickedness. It is true that one of those commandments concerns the pursuit of pleasure and the other the pursuit of profit. But both are about coveting. And when taken together, the illicit pursuit of pleasure and of profit account for all the sins covered by the Ten Commandments. Thus, those who do not covet will not pursue, and not pursuing they will not sin. Why then would God have a separate commandment for stealing one's neighbor's goods and for coveting one's neighbor's goods? Is it not obvious that if stealing is wrong, then to wish to steal is also wrong? And to desire to steal is also wrong. Well, no, it's not obvious. For many are already wrapped in the habit of taking pleasure in such thoughts. And even more so is this true for the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. Many people act on the false premise that if it causes no harm, then it isn't really wrong. And this is false. But regardless of that fact, there is harm that is caused in coveting. By coveting, one first puts himself in the occasion of sin, particularly where the ninth commandment is concerned. And to knowingly and willingly put oneself in the occasion of sin is itself a sin of the same moral order as the sin itself. So, if it is a mortal sin to steal your neighbor's car, 
then it is a mortal sin to covet, with full consent of the will, your neighbor's car. And recall what we learned about the sixth commandment. Any deliberate seeking of the pleasure which is reserved to the married outside of marriage is a mortal sin. Thus also would be mortally sinful any coveting of the same. But that is not all. In coveting, harm is done to the rights of God, who has first claim on our hearts and our minds. To covet is to refuse to accept that God is our happiness and that all that he wills is for our happiness and all that he does is for our happiness. To be discontent with what we have is to presume that God is not already giving us what is needed for our happiness. Does it not seem silly to covet something else when God is giving us all that we need? So it is that by these two commandments, God seeks to protect us not only from the harm that might be done by the violation of the other commandments, but also from the harm that we might do to ourselves by violating those commandments, even in our hearts and our minds. Who dwells in his heart on illicit things does not love God with his whole heart. For where your heart is, there also is your treasure. See, isn't Lent such a blessing, a season of grace to help us purify our hearts from inordinate attachments. If we were permitted to covet, what agony we would inflict upon ourselves. The Council of Trent calls them unfortunate victims who covet. To always desire that which is unattainable, is that not torture? How much quicker is the victory over temptation when we will not even permit its object to remain in our minds, to replace that object with illicit thought, and to remove ourselves from the surroundings which we associate with those temptations? But in the end, these commandments to not covet are not only negative, thou shalt not, but they also point us towards some very positive things that we should be generous with those material things we've been given, that we should be content with our lot in life. And, of course, if that lot includes the possibility of improvement, then certainly we can take advantage of that. These commandments also teach us that poverty is to be lived with joy for the freedom that it offers, for materialism is among the worst of slaveries. And those who have lived any length of time will testify that wealthy people are not necessarily happy people. That we should be prepared to be without and even to sacrifice the goods of this world for the sake of religion, the glory of God, and the salvation of souls. That's what these two commandments are asking of us. But it is one and the same thing to say, Thou shalt not covet, and also to reasonably expect it. God does not demand the impossible of us. So what natural helps are there to keeping these commandments? Of course, there is Lent, and likewise the regular mortifications, especially fasting, that we must impose upon ourselves throughout the year to better master our passions and our thoughts, and thus our desires for what is not allowed. Isn't Lent wonderful? 
a time of increased grace each year whereby we're given the challenge and the opportunity to set aside the love of this world for the love of the next and for the desire of heavenly things. We can do penance. We can mortify ourselves. Spiritual reading is also necessary to fill our minds, to fill our minds with and to keep in our minds things of heaven and not only things of earth. Even just good stories which extol virtue will be profitable to us. It is much harder to covet illicit things when we are coveting the licit things. Coveting can quickly come upon us from so many sources almost unannounced. And we need to fill our minds and our hearts with things that we are encouraged to covet. For the Council of Trent says that not everything We are not to avoid coveting in everything. For example, heaven and holiness and virtue. For not all coveting is evil. This way we do not give space in our hearts to the things that we ought not. And of course, finally, just as our Lord's passion and death were brought about by the violation of these commandments to not covet, for Judas was a man of avarice, so meditation on that passion and death suffered for us is an excellent remedy for coveting. For who, if he dwells on the scourging at the pillar or the crowning of thorns or the nailing of God to the cross, who would continue to covet another man's wife or goods? Coveting leads to sin, but the coveting of illicit pleasure or profit seems so trivial, so wasteful, pointless in the light of the love that we see in the passion and death of our Savior. So for the keeping of the last two commandments, we have some basic remedies. Mortification, spiritual reading, and meditation on the passion and death of our Lord and Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.